Schneider. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Chaubert Show. I'm your host, Chaubert Chaubert. I'm really excited for our next guest. I think I've known him for over 10 to 15 years. Chris McCoy, thanks for being part of the Chaubert Show. Yeah, man, it's good to be here. So do you want to give you a quick background about yourself and who you are? Yeah, entrepreneur turned 40 next week. Oh, big 4-0, I like it. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, I've been building for, I appreciate that. Been building for a couple decades and uh, nice. systems engineer, low-level computing systems primarily in the world of cryptocurrency, what I call private key computation, working on Web3 cloud governed by a decentralized democracy. And that journey has been built on a number of inventions, which uh, brought me eventually down to Silicon Valley is where I met you. Yeah. Where are you from? I'm from a small town called Kelso, Washington. Where is that in retrospect to, I guess, Seattle or Yeah, so Seattle is about two hours north. It's... uh, Come from an interesting world, didn't know my dad, raised primarily by my grandpa, had a young mom. But one of the interesting parts of my backstory is my extended cousin is the only person in the history of the world to win two Nobel Prizes. Wow. One in chemistry, one in world peace. Who's your cousin? A guy by the name of Linus Pauling. Uh, his father of modern chemistry, arguably the father of molecular biology. He was one of Oppenheimer's best friends, which is an incredible story. He pioneered how vitamin C is a super nutrient and uh, generally one of the smartest minds, I believe, to walk the planet. I didn't learn about it until I was like 10 or 11 for the first time. Wow. It was uh, quite an earth-shattering moment for me being from this tiny sports town. Yeah. I was sports crazed, still in it. Well, uh, I mean, that's where we met when I was a plug-and-play and and you moved to Silicon Valley. You had a company. I did, yeah. I was basically mapping the sports social network of the world. Almost you could think of it as Facebook for sports history. And at that moment, I came down after financial crisis hit Mm, Seattle. Seattle's fairly conservative with the younger entrepreneurs. Financial crisis was in. It was all the cool information that was happening in Seattle was was holed up in Amazon and Microsoft. There's non-competes up there, so there Mm. aren't incentives to share information. And I just got a little bit stagnant. I want to see if I can make it in Silicon Valley. And so I packed up and came to South Bay. How did you hear about you? Funny enough, a plug and play. You know, I went to, when I was getting your sports off the ground, I came to a conference and it was at plug and play and Naval Ravikant spoke. Yeah. When he was doing a startup, remember the blog? He did. Yeah. Boy was there and I got a chance to meet those guys for the first time. And they've been heroes of mine, intellectual heroes at least. And that's where it was. And I remember kind of stepping outside waiting to get my taxi back home and to the airport and looking at me and like, where's Santa Clara? Yeah. You know, I had yeah. no clue where I was. Yeah. And then fast forward a year later, the markets melted down, mm. capital froze up. Yeah, you know, wow. I dropped out of school, went to school to play baseball at the University of Washington and retired gotcha. early, had a long time neck injury that I didn't learn about mm. until I was nearly 40 that uh, showed itself and, and I just wanted to, I wanted to be in the libraries and the coffee shops building and learning. I didn't want to be shagging fly balls. At, well, that's good that you found out at that age, but. I got lucky. It was yeah. really blessed in that, in that way. And so I retired, hung them up early and started my first company. So is your sports your first company or no? No, it's not actually. So what is your like first time you had a 
entrepreneurship moment. I think I saw, you showed the yeah, tweet. I, I, the, I, yeah, I don't yeah, want to well, tell the story. I want you to tell the story. <laughs> yeah. It's actually very cool. Yeah. So my family is, they're construction workers primarily. It's an Irish immigrant family. My dad, I never knew he's Hispanic. So I'm actually a quarter Mexican, oh, right. which no one knows. I don't look like it, but uh, I had no relationship with my father, my real father. We call him the sperm donor, where I come from. <laughs> actually from Oakland. So I easily could have been born and raised in Oakland. Beautiful town, but it, it was a part of the neighborhood that I would have really struggled, I think. Mm. Anyhow, small town. My mom, she was 17. She had my brother, 19, when she had me. My grandpa just lived right around the corner, and he was basically sure. her dad. And my family, construction workers, all big guys, sports guys. And I had no relationship to the Pauling family. My mom's mom died when she was 10 years old. So mm. that side of that family kind of died off before I was born. And so I was born with just sports guys. And uh, not that I didn't like construction, not that I didn't like, I grew up in rural America, sure. lakes and rivers and just playing outside all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, I was a nerd. I, Who are you? Oh, well, like, I what's would, like, I what do you mean by like put anything in front of me? Yeah. I'm going to read it. Uh, Interesting. I live to read. What was, what was your passion about reading that? Uh, you know, I, a lot of biographies actually, like primarily oh. sports biographies, Jackie Robinson, Bobby Orr, and, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lewis Sender. I, mean, I lived and died in the library, but I also collected sports cards. And that was kind of my mm -hmm. come up, the way in which I could, I didn't have much. We were on food stamps, free lunch. Sports cards was a big thing. I used to collect a lot. And I used to try to, like, obviously the hustle was like the bartering the hustle, system. And, yeah, right? it was all about the hustle. Yeah. So you could, you could land a gym, right? And the Michael uh, Jordan rookie card, yeah. the Michael Jordan cards, to whatever, like having a set of cards. I remember having so we didn't all that. So much money to buy cards, yeah. right? So mm. the question is, where do I get my cards from? Well, my Uncle Gary, rest in peace, he started me up with a collection. He gave me a Steve Young rookie card. Wow. Super cool, right? Yeah. And uh, he was part of that Pauling crew, which is a very, like, systems-driven set of mindset. Was so When we talked about sports, we just talked about the game differently. We talked about, like, what the back of a baseball card meant statistically and how that actually came to be. So I was trained to think in systems through sports, which yeah. is why my first actual like real tech company was a sports company. It was a big believer. If you best way to learn how to read is to read about what you love and yeah. the best way to learn how to build is to build what you love. And so first company was actually a plum salesman. My uncle. Plum salesman. Uh, yeah. I sold plums. My uncle had a tree <laughs> out in Ostrander. People buy plums in up in Washington at that time. Well, I had a hustle. I had a pickup. Amazing. And then, uh, you know, we grew up in not the projects, but kind of projects. Mm -hmm. gotcha. So there wasn't a lot of disposable income running around for plum buying. But I was a little six-year-old precocious kid yeah, yeah. going door to door selling like plums. It. And I got my first six, seven dollars and I started buying baseball cards. And then a couple of years later, I traded for a Jackie Robinson rookie card. Wow. True story. Yeah. How the heck did you find that? Just a kid whose dad bought him card shows and he got his hand on a Jackie. So I traded a bunch of Griffey's, yeah, Jordan's, yeah. A-Rod was hot back yeah, then yeah, yeah. when he was a rookie. <laughs> and yeah, I owned Jackie a Jackie Robinson, Robinson rookie. rookie. So, <laughs> Oh my God. Let's say, you know, I had a sucker business in between. Sure. I tried to start card shows. I got shut down by the school. You name it. Time I got to high school, I got really involved in DECA, which was a marketing and entrepreneurship organization, the largest student organization in the country, actually. And I fell in love with it. And I ended up to help my family and my community becoming the 
state parliamentary my sophomore year and then the state president my junior senior year and high school high school yeah wow congrats. and so i was able That's to crazy. now start going to seattle sure interfacing with the kids from bellevue kirkland yeah. i'm this small town rural kid right? yeah, yeah, yeah and from a family that doesn't have I grew up on the other side of the tracks in a town that's looked at like it's on the other side of the tracks. And you uh, see these kind of Wahlberg films, which he always features these type of stuff, which actually uh, I'm, I'm like impressed that he does this type of thing. But like, you know, people say he's joking and all that. I'm like, yeah, but some of his films, you could say even Christian Bale's done some of these films about like Pittsburgh yeah. and other places like that. So oh, that, that's a real world, man. Yeah. There's so many people living and grinding in that world. And yeah, so I, Became the state president, and that was for DACA. For DECA, yeah, yeah, that was a DECA. monumental thing for a kid from Kelso. Wow! And my baseball career started taking off. Fastball got up to about 90, 91, 92. Wow! You're a pitcher. Pitcher started getting recruited by Stanford, UCLA, Amazing. Michigan. My brother actually was already playing for the University of Washington, so he, both of us could throw. That. Yeah, and uh, I ended up going to the UW after kind of an injury sort of mm. exposed itself and. Didn't want to stray too far from home, but, you know, I think in another world, if I'm not injured, I probably end up at Stanford playing baseball there for three, yep. four years. Yep. But I am going to Seattle. And uh, but between that year, between my state presidency and going to college, I actually ran for national president of DECA and I won. Wow. And I took a year off. Yeah, so yeah. where was we in DC or what was uh, that? Uh, we traveled like 25 states. I basically had an internship in a cubicle in Bellevue. I learned really quickly that I did not want to ever work in a cubicle. Actually, <laughs> when Facebook got started in 24, I one of the first groups I created was I do not want to work in a cubicle ever. <laughs> and I you got, started that. In I did. I did. Yeah, I just hated cubicles. I hated it. I hated it, still do. Anyhow, yeah, um, I know. You know the feeling, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's how we met. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so I traveled the year and effectively served as the national president of that organization. So you and dropped out of college for this, or I didn't no, drop out? I took or a sabbatical. Year. Yeah, sabbatical. Basically, got a sabbatical. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's pretty cool. It had a transformative, we'll call it, impact on my journey because I started reading a lot of books. Now, growing up as a little kid, I read sports books. I read sure. Beckett's. I read anything I could read. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I read the encyclopedia. I read the, it's pretty uh, read the Guinness Book of World Records. I mean, I just loved information. So at recess, it was raining all the time in the Northwest. Yeah. So rather than playing kickball and tetherball, I'd be in the library just reading. And my uncles kind of got mad at me because I wouldn't be outside playing with other kids. I just sure. wanted to be inside reading all the time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it wasn't until I got older and I recognized that I was just built differently. And I got wondering, well, where does that come from? Because I come from a family where my grandpa's dad was a coal miner with Mickey Mantle's dad in Oklahoma. Wow. And so the baseball love, sports love makes sense. But the appetite for data and information and systems was not apparent from the, I side of the family that. that I grew up around. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s where I started recognizing the world. I've also, like when I was in high school, I was like, one of my two passions was like sports. Sports and I, I memorized all the athletes and like the stats and information. I want to be a sportscaster. Yeah. But one of the things I actually, speaking of baseball, is one of the three things I forgot who mentioned this as a quote. They said the three things that is very American is baseball, hot dogs, and jazz music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the baseball analogy is basically 
the data stats is like, how do you relate that to your real life scenario? Yeah. Like, or business scenario. Yeah. Like, you're raising funding. Well, you know, the last straw. What you would do as a little kid is you would open up the newspaper every day to see the stats, right? Yeah. And you'd see the guys that are trending up. This is pre-internet. And or sports lo- I would listen to the radio, sports radio, basically. Sports radio. Yeah. yeah. We didn't really have that where I was from. So you just okay. basically had the newspaper and gotcha. stats. You had to learn how to live wow. and understand markets through statistics. Amazing. And then you would go try to trade for the cards that were emerging. And then you would basically speculate on a guy and then you would go trade up for it. So I traded. I did that enough. Dendo with a Jackie Robinson. Rookie. I still can't believe you got a Jackie and Robinson. And then in college, card. when I retired from baseball, I knew through that gap here, I started learning about because I don't come from a family where there's entrepreneurs. Business is not a thing that is a known thing in the yeah, world yeah, I yeah. come from. And so I had to kind of learn it from scratch. And so I plus did. you you are so like the generation like myself, where that generation was at the cusp of like like my father. Either they own their own businesses forever. Or they come from like a job that they had for thirty to forty years until they retire, right? Yeah. And like and now, and then we come that Gen X millennial generation, basically like, oh, we could hack things, we could do it's things. A little the bit internet creativity, yeah. yeah, a little bit of flexibility, creativity. Thought about your career, and so like yeah, here I started reading books about entrepreneurship and business and technology specifically, and. I was convinced that going to college, I just wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what I wanted to build. I didn't have an idea. And when I got into college, the first class I took was a 400 level business class that I audited. And I remember the professor asked us, well, what do you want to do with your career? These were mostly seniors. And you were what at this point? I was just a, I didn't even know how to take a college class. I, I showed up with the SATs without a calculator. Damn. Yeah. And I said, I want to take a company public one day. Wow. I still remember it today. And I, it's relevant because I'm doing stock option sure. grants right now and uh, for a deal. And I'm, I'm granting that professor who ended up becoming one of my main academic advisors, stock options for just a wow. gift. And a thank you for giving me the ability to go. I ended up creating my own major in Seattle. Sold the Jackie Robinson to start my first company. Started teaching the science of how to throw a baseball to dads in Seattle. Built like a $100,000 a year company. Ran it in classes in my laptop. Uh, most teachers hated my guts. Did the real estate development master's program in line with, with this. And started a nonprofit called the Isla Baseball Foundation. We started doing mission trips down in the Dominican Republic. And cool. recognized how important the game was to the development of those kids' lives. And it reminded me of my own life. If, yeah. if I didn't have the gift of baseball... Growing up in the world I grew up in, it would have been pretty dark. That time, probably also like, oh my God, Dominican Republic had some of the yeah, greatest Pedro players. Martinez, man. Big Poppy. Yeah. Yeah. So right? David Ortiz, yeah. Vladimir Guerrero. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like oh the renaissance God. of Dominican baseball. Yeah. And so I'd go down there after I was done playing for University of Washington, and I'd go down there on these mission trips and play. And it was some of the best. I'm just very proud of that work and we started a foundation. I call it the I Love Baseball Foundation. I basically invented it, recruited co-founders, and we struck ground on our first ever field last year. What? And uh, we now have a baseball and education academy in the Dominican near Haiti in a really impoverished area with kids who don't have access to the same resources that kids in Santo Domingo have. And Pretty cool. I have a big passion for the game and of course, the ability yeah. for kids to play it. I got lucky that my grandpa loved it so much. And, uh, yeah, that, that I was given the gift of the game and I happened to be able That's, to play it decently enough that I could make a career of it to a point where my injury set in and then I had to retire. And then it was like, well, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to build. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, I started this company, ran it, and then uh, Your Sports came around my senior year when I started seeing the social connectivity within what Mark was doing at Facebook. And I recognized, mm-hmm. well, you could do that around a ball field. And so that company got financed by some of the guys, dads that I played with at UW. Cool. And uh, I was able to, I dropped out of UW. I was getting recruited to work at Microsoft and I raised my first money and it was like life changing. And then that set me off on an adventure to Silicon Valley after the financial crisis just kind of crashed the startup markets and I had to keep iterating and where I landed at by the time I came when I met you for the first time was crowdfunding sports media rights. And I actually worked with the guys who invented, remember, you know, group uh, GoFundMe? Yeah, GoFundMe, yeah. Yeah, it's Brad and Andy. Yeah, they oh. actually helped me work through the design of the product for for your sports. Wow. Yeah, this is before they rebranded the GoFundMe. They yeah. were selling this thing for like half a billion dollars, right? Yeah, yeah. They I'm were in a California product shop at the time. And wow. I was living and working out of my basement in Seattle where I'd go to this coffee shop and Dave Matthews would come in every day. Really? Um, yeah, it was <laughs> once a financial crisis. We had an office on the Ave in Seattle and the financial crisis just sucked it out. So I had a spin that down, lay off my team, which happened to be most of my best friends. Mm. It was as painful Hard. as it gets, yeah, yeah. but I didn't quit. And uh, I kept iterating. I kept going Good. as an entrepreneur. And that's what got me down in California. That's like I said, I'll never forget seeing your face open to the door there on University <laughs> Avenue, plug and play. And, and that was my welcome to Silicon Valley moment. Cool. Yeah. I mean, that's a, <laughs> obviously I was like, uh, University Avenue is a special place with all the successful companies. Yeah, you read the articles and you're like, you hear the legendary stories and all of a sudden you're there and you're like, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, uh, and the plug and play, you know, quick backstory for those who's listening. Saeed, when he started it and the team, they had a a successful office on University Avenue where PayPal, Logitech and Google, and they had equity there in all those companies. And basically he's like, oh, if we could do it for one company each time, why don't we do it for like a bigger set of companies? And that's where the plug and play concept came you could easily plug and play get in and yeah i was fortunate enough to manage the one in palo alto and see like people like yourself and others come in so tell me from your sports how long were you doing that and then i know you've had a kind of an interesting background with like data for america and then obviously getting into crypto so i'd like to hear a little bit like kind of the you know the story there like what yeah the journey with your sports was fascinating we got to a point where we basically mapped the world of sports in america where we knew where every every guy who's went to Duke, played basketball, went to high school. And we could wow. semantically connect those networks. We could build identity for the world of sports historically in a way that no one else could. We cut out this, called it the sports graph. And we found some angel investors to kind of support our belief out of the Stanford ecosystem. And mm-hmm. along that time, again, for me, like local sports and supporting your local communities have always been important to me. My uncle Kirby, who was kind of like a follow-like figure, he was essentially a not an economic philanthropist, but a, a construction philanthropist. When he got diagnosed with with cancer, which ultimately took his life, he he galvanized the community to build world class for rural America infrastructure for baseball and softball. He built batting cages, concession stands, wow. and he also helped me raise money for my DECA campaigns. And him and I became uh, he's my grandpa's brother. We became, it was like a dad or I don't know. I don't even know how to explain him. He, sure. He was just a, a catalyst for my life. Someone who believed in me in a way that, that propelled me out of, uh, I grew up in a fairly dark environment. And uh, anyhow, he, uh, before he passed away, I asked him, hey, you know, 
is there anything I can do for your family? I haven't made it yet, but if I ever make it, yeah. what could I do to just say thanks to your legacy? And he just said, Chris, do something nice for the kids at Kelso. So I thought, okay, that's easy. Yeah. So that's always driven me. And with your sports, I was working on technology that I could do a deal with the Pittsburgh Steelers and actually share money back to every high school and every player who's ever played for the Pittsburgh Steelers went to. And that led me down to being fasting with payments and settlement systems. And so, oh, interesting. you know, I saw early Stripe, obviously. Yeah. We were doing a lot with PayPal APIs, you know, all out of plug and play. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it was just fun. And, uh, Crazy. And then I came to the conclusion that PayPal was was a risk. If you're running any kind of complex payment system, they could shut down any node and your payment network would basically die. And that's when I found Bitcoin. What and year was this? It was 13. And I said, well, if I could move money in a social system and pay out multiple entities with a single click, then I could execute this vision to bring money back to local sports around the country. Yeah. If not the world. And this is like before any of these like centralized platforms were actually managing Bitcoin. You had to go direct. Oh, yeah. No, no, yeah. I, I mean, how did, I so just, how did you land that? How well, did you find that? The first set of experiments was actually trying to program directly on Bitcoin's ledger. And it wow. was like programming a lawnmower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It failed. We just could not do it. It was pre-tap root. Yeah, secure, not get hacked and all this stuff. Everybody yeah, well, those weren't even considerations at the time. It okay. was just, can you actually program on Bitcoin scripts gotcha. in a way that you could actually integrate that into a web application. With that said, uh, I moved, I, you know, believed in Bitcoin, what it represented from the moment that I, I saw it and uh, became a purchaser of Bitcoins. And uh, my friends thought I was crazy. You know, I was trying to tell my friends in college who were more traditional guys, finance guys, real estate guys. They still think it's crazy. That's the funny thing. Well, it's I think it's obviously changed well, now in 2023 yeah, yeah, than it was yeah, 10 yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was telling most of them to get get into Solana and a dollar yeah. just because I knew Anatoly and their technology had, oh, yeah. had, had real legs. But with that said is... A year or two after that, I was like, uh, I was at that time at Pebble and uh, we were offering payment systems. You pay obviously by credit card, yeah. you pay uh, with PayPal or you can pay by Bitcoin. And Bitcoin at that point was PayPal. You guys had Bitcoin in the Pebble. You could have bought the watch environment. You could actually buy Pebbles on our website with Bitcoin. I see. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and this is like when the the coin was maybe less than a couple hundred bucks. Sure, it was probably fourteen, fifteen, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I I look back. I'm like, obviously, every time I look back, I'm like, I could have bought it, but whatever. But it's just so fascinating to see kind of the growth and development where it's at now and where it was then. Yeah. At that point. I think maybe Pebble was one of the first use cases because I always believed in like what is like an actual use case for, <laughs> for this technology yeah. and no one was using because no one had Bitcoins at that time. I'm just looking at it as a settlement system. And then once we basically failed at our payment, yeah. we'll call it system, I said, well, what if I could write sports level identity data into the ledger in a way that that data would be forever stored on, on Bitcoin miners, on Bitcoin nodes? And then what if application developers wanted to leverage that sports graph identity data wanted to build with it, they would have to then pay Bitcoins to the identity of the owner. So I was essentially looking at identity as a property right encoded on chain represented by private keys. And we actually tried that experiment. Essentially, right now, you'd look at that, that you try to do NFTs for identity. I was just about to say, like, you could have done like, 
you would have been the first like yes. baseball card digital yes. like uh, I would have been yes we tried this not just on a Bitcoin so but really also cool. on so Ethereum really, yeah. yeah that the timing so, was tough and so it was yeah, super yeah. challenging so yeah. but I right, I looked at it, I said the future of data clearly is data represented by a private key it said if I want to access your data I need to pay some form of value exchange for that and the owners of the data have inherent property rights and those property rights can be enforced through blockchain technology and so once i recognized that my experiment on bitcoin was not going to work it would have taken hundreds of years cost hundreds and thousands of dollars yeah. it was right around that time i met vitalik at, yeah uh, founder of uh, ethereum at ethereum this is the first major bitcoin conference in san francisco 2014 just as he released his first paper and I studied it because we went really deep into how Bitcoin was architected and sure. understood consensus level technology and saw, okay, Vitalik essentially forking out Satoshi, but he's putting a computational platform on top. Could I build something on that? Yeah. And this is all with your sports, right? And wow. I said, well, what if I could basically create baseball cards on top yeah, of yeah. Ethereum? Where theoretically, Ken Griffey Jr. could have a card and every season that he played could have its own token with its own supply schedule. And if you owned that token, we took it to a whole nother level. Like Griffey could communicate with you, right? That's cool. And yeah. we started prototyping this and working on it. And I ran into two problems. Problem one was where the hell do I store all the off-chain data? Where do I query it? I need like actual data to build a Griffey identity. I can't just hit SSD, SS storage. It's super expensive mm. and the EVM. And uh, so I couldn't solve, I could not figure that out. And then the second problem was, well, how the hell, if I create a token for Griffey and the Ethereum miners don't want to get paid in that token, mm. why would my users want to get paid in that token? They only want to get paid in Ether. They don't want to get paid in Griffey coin. Yeah. And again, I have Anthony Diorio recruiting me to build. This is, so I look seriously at it. Talked to Vitalik and I'm tweeting at Brian Armstrong saying, you guys got to list this thing. This is super interesting. And I got so mad about Ethereum's limitations, about Bitcoin's limitations. I literally just, I kind of rage quit. And I bought, I'm one of the first ever investors in Ethereum. Really? But I decided not to build on it because I didn't believe in the way it's computational the way economic monetary premiums were architected, storage was architected. I just didn't believe in it as an, as an entrepreneur. And this is before like the blockchain was actually a big thing. This is, I mean, it was a big thing then, but now it's much more mainstream. But back sure. then it was like, I looked at these as computational systems with resources. And it's like, as a developer, as an inventor, what can you bring to life with these resources? And block space inherently a very scarce resource. Yeah. So I left the space for a year and a half to started a new company, turned your sports over to Jim and ran it for eight years. And, uh, eight years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, it was like getting a master's degree in entrepreneurship yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and got me to Silicon Valley and rag and I were able to start jamming together. And uh, you tested out the, the new future technologies in Bitcoin basically and became competent and distributed systems sure. and, and scalable architectures and database technologies. That's where I've always felt most comfortable as an entrepreneur. And that's why I didn't want to move to San Francisco because it all felt like the UI layer. It didn't <laughs> feel like the systems layer. And I don't look like it, but I'm a systems engineer. I like yeah. low-level systems. I like to be able to reorganize them and, and build them in ways that enable new emergent computing properties. And so I was fascinated with private key computation. So 
yeah, new company and same problem. I wanted to move messages with money. What was this company? It was called Footprint. It was Footprint Chat. Now it's the largest ecosystem partner in store. And it, uh, it's been a tremendous partner to store. Very thankful for my investors there and my board there to let me, you know, it founded store essentially. But at the time we had uh, in between your sports and footprint, I said, let's, I want to explore the world of technology and policy, but not in a partisan way. Mm-hmm. I don't want liberal politics or conservative politics to impact the way I see the way policy should maybe be shaped. And I want to understand. So for me, data has always been what I've been most comfortable with. So it was, can I unveil the data underneath policy in a way in which I can understand it? If I can understand it, I can help others understand it in a way that's fairly binary, fairly first principles. So I started a nonprofit called Data for America. I was going to ask about that's when you started Data for America. Yeah, it was more so a, a, you know. And you had some big, big time people supporting it. Yeah, I had some phenomenal people. Cyan, yeah, yeah. yeah, she's my... My angel and yeah. data for America, yeah. yeah, which she doesn't know yet, but we're about to give her a huge store airdrop. Oh, wow. And everyone who helped create that because it was not a commercial entity, it's more of a think tank. Sure. And I was able to get connected with a lot of really awesome people in, in Silicon Valley. Ken Mike Cutler became a good friend, and Bobby Goodlaw became one of wow. our big donors. Sure. And just uh, Garrett Johnson, just really. Nate Lubin, who ran digital for Obama, dropped out of Harvard as a sophomore to go basically run marketing for his campaign. So my first ever investor footprint now runs the largest digital marketing agency for the Democrats. And his partner just became Biden's director of comps. Wow. And mm-hmm. it wasn't the plan. It was more so I had an intellectual interest in policy, but I didn't want to learn it by reading 30 page think tank yeah. papers or sitting down in a seminar learning. I wanted to... And I've always thought of myself as being politically purple, right? Like pretty moderate, would yeah. identify as a Democrat, but I can argue against Democrats really well and formidable against conservatives and market driven. But growing up on food stamps and free lunch, I know what it's like to not be born in an environment where there's wind behind you, mm-hmm. where literally you're up against a hill. And so the way that conservatives look at market dynamics don't apply to you. Like, it's so damn hard to even think that opportunities, you're good enough for it. It's psychological. It's weird. It's And so for me, I'd kind of climbed out of that environment. But I wasn't a full-on capitalist, but I was very much capitalist. But I was very sympathetic to the plight of folks who, whether it's Black people growing up in inner cities without dads or white people like myself, which I'm Hispanic, but I kind of, I, I, I've never written that on an application. I've always just identified as a generalizable white guy Yeah, that did not have, um, wasn't that we didn't have opportunity. wasn't that we weren't, I wasn't smart or we weren't smart or people that sure. were there smart. It's just, you just never think you're good enough. And when you're getting paid by the government to live, when you're walking through that food stamps, yeah. free lunch line, it's just a whole different psychology. And so for me, I had to pull myself through that and rationalize it and then recognize, no, I want to build an event, be a capitalist, but I don't ever want to forget where I'm from. Mm. I remember before we were actually doing this podcast, we were talking a little bit, I'm, I'm a little kind of pivoting. I'll come back. It's a little relatable. It's like, I see that now with America. There is a little bit of that massive disconnect where like the big cities and the inner, like in America, that's why there's a lot of conflict. I don't want to get political. I'm thinking more entrepreneurial and like the opportunity here. And I, I was talking about how like 
we were fortunate enough to be in San Francisco for the last 10, 15 years yeah. of like the peak. What if the rest of America could see that, right? Obviously, the, this tech has been dis- decentralized. A lot of college towns like Austin or upcoming areas, even Miami to a certain extent, which was not even tech-related, is becoming tech-related. Yeah. Do you see that as a thing? I mean, you've now run companies. You've obviously run a, a incredible nonprofits like Data for America. What can you see where the U.S. could benefit from like tech and entrepreneurship in places that are not used to? It's more, you know, blue collar manufacturing, yeah. but it could. Uh, you have to do what the code.org guys did. Yeah. You have to really push for computer science education and data science education. I feel like that's the future. It's almost like to be pushed uh, manufacturing down into the is, middle school yeah. era, right? Yeah. So you have to get teachers comfortable enough to be able to teach it, the principles of it. You got to be able to get kids comfortable with uh, spinning up a machine with Python and being able to wrangle data and clean data and write scripts. And those are skill sets that you get paid $150,000 minimum here to do, right? Correct. So the question is, is how do you solve for that? And I think it's a challenge. It's a problem of incentives. And it's also a problem of uh, prioritization. And most folks in policy, which I've learned is, you know, I spent some time out in DC and Mm. I feel like Steve Wozniak, but I'm more like Steve Jobs out there, um, like a wizard, technically. And yeah. I'm good, but not as good as Woz. Yeah, yeah. And not even close, actually. But they just, there's such a, a lack of real technology out there. The people who are technologists are essentially like product marketers here, mm. <laughs> is a good way to think about it. Interesting perspective. Yeah. It, yeah. That's it. I, I spent, when I was working with Data for America, I really bridged that gap. I spent a lot of time out there. Got to know a lot of folks out there and bridge the divide there and recognize that, which helped me form my thesis for your sports, actually. But, but for, I think for, it's a huge store. And I, sorry to interrupt, but I, I feel like, again, I don't want to go too much in this tangent. And we could, my perspective is like now I'm in mobile. Everyone has a smartphone now. Yep. That's one. Like you're also in the crypto blockchains community, the decentralization. That's the future. Like everything is going to be on the cloud. And I just feel like, Everybody is literally like a touch away from like actually being part of some sort of tech career Yep. Um, that's associated. I, I felt like the pandemic and specifically the lockdowns, quite frankly, should have accelerated that process. And yep. I'm not trying to like, like there was a lot of issues politically, socially with like the lockdowns and, you know, like what have you. And I'm not trying to enforce tech to be part of people's lives. I'm just saying like it could empower them. No, I grew up in a community in which if computer science was data science were part of the curriculum say eighth grade starting the jobs that kids choose, the colleges they want to go to, not yeah. even colleges, the training schools, the, it would be completely different. So if I could wave a magic wand and say, Hey, here's a policy. It's we're going to subsidize and incentivize our teachers to learn these skills. Yep. And we're going to, we're going to partner with the code.orgs, yeah. the Khan academies, and we're going to mandate math, and computer science to be integrated. And, but again, when you go back to the world of politics and government, that's like a, what I just said is a foreign language. And so question is, well, how would that change? It would change with leadership, the mm-hmm. right vision, an Obama-like message. And, yeah. and so part of my interest in politics now is actually finding people that I believe in that can actually say that. Yeah. And that people in Iowa will, well, it was the industrial revolution. (laughs) I think it's the technology revolution. Yeah. And I think we've got to compete against, you know, other entities. 
Anyways, I didn't want to go too much into that, but like, no, no. But the time, a, so Data for America, that's right, that's relatable. Yeah, so I, I went really deep into policy for a bit and was gave me a, a mental model for how to think about policy. So now I can square up a policy really elegantly awesome. and actually understand it. Is this still around? Data? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually about to bring it back. Oh, because okay. uh, I, yeah. I, with time, we have like 10 minutes and I wanted to kind of uh, yeah. get into your new company store. And yeah, yeah. Relatable. Like, uh, you yeah, I'm going to bring Data for America back. Awesome. And more so the Trump world made it tough to be like push intellectualism i would say and tribalism kind of ruled and conspiracyism ruled and even your you know really sharp conservatives got drowned out and that was tough but i feel like the folks who entrusted me to even bring data for america to life as a nonprofit, i owe it to their legacies to just this is my political vehicle and i will continue to push but housing is really interesting to me land mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's an area that I want to focus on education. Obviously, I was the national president of the largest educational marketing entrepreneurship. It's pretty wild. In the country. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm working on hosting an event series this year. I haven't announced it yet, but I'll tell you, calling it decentralized thoughts. I love it. Yeah. And it's this idea, it's an invite only Chatham House rule type event where we get a speaker who, you know, at the intersection of artificial intelligence, machine learning, private key computation, governance systems, either interconnected or not, can give a thesis statement, 20 minutes, and then folks show up in the room and can meet and talk. And So cool. But yeah. I didn't leave San Francisco like a lot of people. I live here, been here for six, seven years Thank now. you. <laughs> and, uh, My native San Francisco is like, appreciate that. Totally. Yeah. And I'm not from here, obviously. Could yep. have been in, born and raised in Oakland, but for... Just got lucky that I had a wonderful grandpa that didn't let me be yep. born in that environment. And I grew up in a tough environment, but it was uh, better than where I was probably supposed to be born and raised. And, but now I'm here building but, and thinking. You but know, you was, had entrepreneurship and I mean, you kind of look at it. I think you had entrepreneurship in your blood and your family and they empowered you to do it. So it's there. It, and it that circle there, right? came around back to here and now you want yeah, to give it back. It has to be there. Yeah. And, somewhere, then, but, and then let's talk about store then. Like that's kind of part of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, store is like a thesis project. It sort of says, wait, what did I learn in governance, understanding governance systems and studying democracy from a first principles perspective, the constitution and why yeah. it has essentially withstood some some attacks. Like what are the, what's the math behind that? Like what is wrong about Bitcoin? What's wrong about Ethereum? Obviously, both projects are incredible projects. And there's mm -hmm. way more right about them than there is wrong. But as an mm -hmm. entrepreneur, my job is to understand what could be better and how the world can benefit from that. Not how, you know, what, what I think, but do I think I can actually take technology and meld it in a way that has a force function that's greater than what they can because of their mistakes, their errors, or their just things that they're never going to be able to do well. And with Store, it was born out of research. It wasn't born out of, hey, I want to start a crypto project because I'm a crypto guy. I don't even really think of myself as a crypto guy. I just happen to be a technologist that's fasting with private key computation. That's awesome. So what is it you're solving with Store? First of all, the name's great. How did you come up with that? And second of all, like, uh, yeah, like what is it solving? Because I know I, I wrote it down here. I don't want to kill it, but like. Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's been a journey. I think when we started the project, it started out of research. It said, hey, we want to move messages incentivized by money, by currency. Yep. But if we do that with Stripe's APIs, we're going to pay 3%, mm. 30 cents on every message. Okay, not even on the books. Most messages aren't worth that much. So 
let's dive back into the world of peer-to-peer. Let's see, where's Ethereum? Where's Vitalik taking this project? Where's Bitcoin? Where's the blockchain guys and whatnot taking this project? What else has emerged since I've left the space? And it was clear that no one credibly solved, we'll call it scalable settlement infrastructure with essentially no fee to low fee. And um, that's what my board and I said, let's spin this out as a research project, not even as a real protocol. Let's just... Interesting. When was this? 17. Okay. Let's put some research into wow. the world. Six years ago. Yeah. Six years ago. Yeah. Crazy. It feels like yesterday, all this stuff. Yeah. So we started looking at the problem. And the first thing was, okay, if you're going to try to solve zero fee settlement, you need to be inflation only. So how do you allocate... X amount of inflationary rewards across 365 days without knowing what the transaction volume is and never running out of rewards. And so we ended up with an algorithm we ended up calling dynamic proof of stake, which can be almost thought of as Uber search pricing, but for network security. So how do you algorithmically stabilize network security in a protocol? And we started experimenting with Tendermint, which powers the Cosmos system really early. We pushed it to 160 nodes in a test network and got it down, or 160,000 transactions per second in an eight-node environment, and then bumped it up to a 21-node environment, and it reduces down to about 60,000 TPS. And we sort of recognize, okay, as you add more computers into this consensus algorithm, beautifully designed BFT consensus algorithm, open, just incredible job by Jay Kwan and team, and fundamentally would scale. And so Rag and I started working on a new design, and... We invented Blockfin BFT, which is a paralyzed pipeline, asynchronous and leaderless decentralized database mechanism for validating blocks with Byzantine fault tolerance. And we filed for a patent on that, and we now own the patent on it. And it could be the most efficient decentralized database invented. We don't know that yet. We're still, we're now in the next phase of writing it. It's been a journey, but it's, Super fast, super efficient, and uh, wow. yeah, it's really exciting. It's really, really exciting. So we have a new block. We have a new block space computer. And, Crazy. In that journey, we recognize that rather than offloading historical data to centralized parties like mm-hmm. Ethereum does with infra, that's what I saw in your like presentation. Thanks for sharing. It was like right now everybody's based, even though they call it decentralized, you're still backed by like AWS. Yes. Google Cloud. Centralized, Azure. we'll call it, whether it's compu- yeah. centralized compute parties, right? Tremendous right. centralized compute counterparty risk. Whereas in Bitcoin, everyone runs their own node and Amazing. not only validates transactions, it stores all data. And Bitcoin governance has arrived at a really beautiful design for how that can persist for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Granted, ordinals and NFTs are going to challenge that, which I absolutely love because I was honestly kind of none of that <laughs> without actually shipping it, but I was on it. A decade ago, is we recognize that Crazy. <laughs> chain history needs forever storage. Yeah, and so we recognize okay, the infrastructure to power store is going to be more than a Raspberry Pi, or it's going to be a real server. It's going to be we need to get on the bare metal. We need to get in the data centers, but we need to do it in a trust minimized manner um, where there's real Byzantine fault tolerance in the infrastructure layer. And so we spent. Uh, pretty significant research sprint figuring out how to do that. And we did it. So now store cloud is running. Um, Amazing. It's essentially a rivalous cr- cloud to AWS or Azure, uh, not as feature rich, but compute, storage, memory, 
bandwidth networking all run inside. So the entire protocol is running on our own cloud, which is really neat. We're eating our own dog food. Um, and do you have like developers and people using it right now? Companies? Yeah, we're, we're, we're the developers. Okay. Yeah, right. so yeah, so yeah, yeah. So we're just writing it. We just, right now, we're just writing a ton of software. Okay. Uh, we're the builders, we're the inventors. We're running our own infrastructure. We've invented what we call Byzantine Fault Tolerant ID based upon this research we call Fault Tolerant Trust, which says that uh, we invented a way in which BFT, trust minimization, can be introduced into any environment online or off without any central party turning it on. Uh, so awesome. BFT consensus mechanisms basically uh, facilitate that. We've created a mechanism in, in which BFT can be engineered into uh, governance systems, essentially, wow. into cloud systems, uh, into nation state governance systems, if you really wanted to push it that far, into AI, into autonomy. Wow. So what would be your best next... Uh like situation. Yeah. So, so for us is when we launch, we'll launch with the perpetual storage resource. So forever storage for NFT metadata, neural networks will be able to open up AI in a way that no other protocol can, we believe, and make AI potentially tradable as its own token. Um, what we're working towards is productizing in a way that uh, we can account for and run an actual profitable protocol. Again, what would be like a poster child product you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, at the minimum, it's like, let's say you have a new social network. Okay. And what we believe that others don't, which I'm a big believer in the secrets theology, which is what do you think it's true that no one else agrees with you on? It's very okay. Peter Thielian. Yeah, yeah. But it's true when you think about innovation, where are you right that everyone else either doesn't know or they would disagree with you on? Most block space blockchain inventors believe that 100% of the workload is on chain. It's written into block space, but block space is a very limited computing resource. So as a builder, very limited what you can build. So you see financial contracts, you see, you know, you're starting to see on-chain NFTs and Bitcoin, but for the most part, all of the data in NFTs is stored off chain mm. and, or in a separate chain. It's not stored in, in, in block space itself. Block space is very conservatively architected. Therefore, it's, a very conservative computing resource to build with. So for us, we see a world where the future of, of crypto is the application that you build tomorrow is going to have a token, but 95% of the workload is going to run on a cloud. Mm -hmm. And 5% is going to hit block space for smart contracts, for settlement. And both what we believe is both of those computing resources need to be trust minimized and credibly governed. They need, they need to fall under trust minimization. And right now what's happening is, let's take OpenSea, for example. It doesn't have a token, could, might. 5% of OpenSea's workload is hitting Ethereum block space, transactions and message signing. 95% is in a cloud, but it's AWS or Azure. Mm, yep. And we think that we'll call a paradigm is what future of Web3 looks like. It's not just you building in block space. So we fundamentally look at the space differently than in order to bring that to life, you have to be able to provide the infrastructure. And so we've spent a tremendous amount of time getting the infrastructure right and getting the governance around that right. And, uh, you know, what we're doing is very much an experiment with an uncertain future in terms of whether it's going to have efficacy. But we believe that it has tremendous potential to become, uh, as a developer tomorrow, do you want to centralize your data 
in AWS, and you compute in AWS, have huge switching costs if you want to move out, or do you want to issue a token on top of your application environment and have your compute resources powered by miners around the world without losing any performance? Yep. And we believe that the future of innovation is developers issuing tokens. And it won't just be for application workloads. It's going to be for data models like neural networks. Crazy. So this is how we think open AI comes to scale. But what's the fundamental problem in AI? It's computational costs. Mm -hmm. So we're now working on adding GPUs into our cloud. Which is really exciting. So we have it's a pretty been, exciting time. You're the first yeah. person I ever talked to you about this because we're yeah. just working on it nonstop. But it's really promising. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate you uh, yeah. sharing this. Uh, so I guess with the the last, I mean, this is first off, it's been incredible. Thank you so much. That's for been fun, man. Yeah, the story's been great. Where do you see then? What are you excited about the future? Like, what is it that you're like? Okay, both you, your company, and beyond. Like, what do you see as the next like big thing that you're really like passionate about? Yeah, I'm a techno optimist by. I like that techno by trade, I would say. <laughs> but I'm a realist too. Yep. And I have concerns about machine intelligence and how it can gaslight society, essentially. And technologists do are responsible for what we build. Yep. And uh, I'm optimistic about playing about essentially introducing a layer two store, which effectively is governance that could become generalizable governance for data and servers at scale at a global level. Very exciting. Yeah. And being able to expose the APIs in which any developer can actually bring that governance into their environment. And that governance is effectively a democracy. It's not a plutocracy. It's equitable. <laughs> and uh, so all the work I did with Data for America very much inspired the work that I did blending democracy and the computing systems. And I'm just generally on the side of inventors yep. and creators. And uh, I think that the future is going to be a little weird. Yep. But I think instead of a handful of companies controlling the data and the, the applications we all give our data to, you're going to have an explosion of innovation where we spend time and resources to application X, workload Y, and private key technology is going to let those, the owners of their data start to monetize their own data. So the internet is going to be more equitable. Um, I like it. And, you know, you could argue that those who control the computing resources control the world. You could make that argument with GPUs. Yep. If you look at G, you know, AI and government, military, yep. the ability to democratize who can run GPUs and who can benefit economically through GPU computing and tensor and just general, we'll call it parallelized processing compute. And you're going to see that go to the edges. Now it goes back to the education political discussion. Well, yeah, how yeah. do you get more people to participate in that economy? You need leadership at the federal level to basically push at a state level, this kind of education. And it's not that I'm not optimistic about it. I just am not seeing anything that I'm like, you know, I can point to that right now and tell you it's coming. Yeah. But we're going to need leaders to step up. And I think Silicon Valley is a place in which there are some of the smartest people I'm ever going to know in my life are here. Whether I like them or not, I know they're <laughs> smart. Yeah. And so hopefully some of those smart people start to serve their country, not awesome. in you know capitalistic ways, but in ways that are of service. And so yep. I don't know what that looks like. and I don't have any predict predictions, but I think we're going to need it. 
And I appreciate that. I think that's a really good uh, perspective to have. And so thank you, Chris, for being part of the Chabert show. It's great to share your story and uh, where you come from and uh, what you got to. And thank you everyone for listening and uh, hope you enjoy this uh, podcast. Thanks, man.